You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. I heard tell it's Friday, folks. You made it. Congratulations. It's going to be the weekend in just a little spell. You just hang in there. We're just about made it. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us for Heard Tell on this Friday, uh, May the 13th. Friday the 13th. Fun. Uh, year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll along. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. A couple things we want to get to today. Uh, we're going to go overseas to Hong Kong. Uh, predictably, the Chinese crackdown continues on the freedoms there, including arresting some really high-profile uh, protesters and dissidents, including a 90-year-old former archbishop. We'll talk about that story. We'll go over to the UK in our feel-good good news segment. We've got a lot of heavy stuff. We always try to end on a lighter note. Uh, Ukraine and Poland have been attached to the hip because they share a border, but Poland's been doing a lot to help the Ukraine out. So they're going to have a little fun in England, and they're going to raise some money for a good cause of helping the refugees and others. Uh, they're going to play a football game. 11 Poles, 11 Ukrainians. Ought to be good fun. We'll end this show on that happy note. Also, a Canadian MP gets himself in a whole lot of trouble for calling in to Parliament meetings. It was from where he called in from. I'll leave it to the segment. You can find out for yourself. And shockingly enough, it's not the first time. This has happened to our friends up north. We'll cover that story as well. Great guest today, James Arnowski. I love having him on. He's our tech expert. He talks about big tech regulation, things like this. We're going to get into the Elon Musk thing again. A lot of noise 
in the news media cycle and on social media, a lot of it coming from Elon Musk himself. So we're going to turn down the noise. We're going to discuss his takeover attempt of Twitter, how he's trying to buy it, how that's going to affect regulation, what Twitter might look like. Is he really the free speech advocate everybody seems to think he is on the right? Is he going to be the death of all things and destroyer of the world that some folks on the left think he is? As usual, the truth somewhere in the middle. We're going to hash out with our friend James Arnowski, Young Voices contributor, great friend of the program, has been on multiple times. Do not miss that conversation. First, we got to deal with this baby formula thing because it's getting really, really loud in the news cycle. It's also getting loud in people's lives, and it's all over social media because people are mad. They're frustrated. As we learned with education during the COVID pandemic and then later on with the vaccine mandates and things like this, you really want to get people hot, start screwing around with their kids goes double when you're dealing with babies, especially the mothers of those babies. People are freaking out over uh, the baby formula. Now, here's the thing about this. It's missing on the shelves. We've all learned through COVID, supply chains are complicated things. There's not one reason why something doesn't show up on your shelf. So let's try to turn down the noise on this a little bit. Let's start with the backstory. Abbott, one of the leading makers of baby formula, they have a couple different brands of it, popular brands of it. They found that they had a bacterium issue in one of their factories up in Michigan. So the FDA came in and shut them down. Now, this was not a trivial thing. Four infants got sick, two infants died. So we don't want to trivialize this bacterium. We know all throughout the food supply chain, you pick whatever, lettuce, baby formula, meats, whatever, a little bit of bacterium can ruin a whole lot of people's lives. It can even kill you, as it did, unfortunately, in this case. So the FDA stepped in. Everything since then, up until now, though, has been a big old hot mess. We're not going to detail every detail of this story for you. You're going to have to go do a little homework on this, but just understand what's happening here. Abbott got shut down by the FDA. That shut down one of the major producers of baby formula here in America. Now, there's other factors involved. We're going to work off a piece in Dispatch. Uh, Scott Lincecum, great uh, economic writer out of the Raleigh area. A good Twitter follow, by the way. Make sure you follow him on Twitter as well. He starts getting into things like tariffs and protectionism and the fact that overseas markets can't get in here and world-class producers of things like baby formula get caught under tariffs meant to protect big dairy and dairy producers here. So even if we wanted to bring in more producers, we can't. So what about Abbott getting shut down? Well, here's part of the problem with that that's not getting discussed in the news media either. Abbott is the preferred maker for the WIC program. That's the program where folks can get things like baby formula, milk, and other things as part of a poverty reduction program and a food program for folks that need it. WIC is wildly popular. It's a very useful program. It does good stuff in a lot of ways. It's not always superly well-managed, but WIC was made the primary manufacturer for the baby formula in the country. So you can imagine when the government gets involved and puts that kind of a contract on one manufacturer, what it does to the marketplace. Reading from the dispatch here, uh, Scott Lincecum, quote, this means that WIC made the very U.S. manufacturers now in trouble with the FDA, Abbott, the dominant national supplier, while predictable efforts for the domestic market when Abbott's Michigan factory shut down. Abbott and the other U.S. producers will surely try to fill the breach, and that facility comes back online. But given Abbott's problems and tightness of the U.S. labor and materials market generally, as well as the fact that the other formula companies weren't expecting demand for their products in part due to the WIC contract, it's unclear whether quick capacity expansion is possible. For Americans' families' sake, let's hope so. 
Scott sums this all up, and he writes a long article dealing with the tariffs, the background, the regulatory agents. I recommend you read the whole thing. Here's the nut. Bad U.S. policy surely didn't cause the infant formula crisis, but it just as surely made the situation worse than it needed to be. Trade barriers and poorly designed welfare policies helped create a brittle system dominated by a few domestic players. Does this sound familiar from our COVID supply chain days, folks? We talk about it. Principles matter. You apply them equally, you don't get in so much trouble. Back to the piece. A system that might muddle through in the good times, but one that crumbles in the face of a serious shock and struggles to recover thereafter. Meanwhile, American consumers, here babies and their already frazzled parents are left in the lurch and world-class foreign producers can't do much because they lack the necessary paperwork and financial incentives or because past U.S. policies have discouraged them from setting up official distribution channels or new facilities to service the American market. Given the market realities, it seems unlikely that U.S. policymakers can flip some policy switch and quickly fix the situation, but they can be hopefully learn a few lessons here. First, that the infant formula situation is an unfortunate reminder that the trendy economic nationalist policies proposed to make America, quote unquote, more resilient tariffs, localization mandates, government contracts can actually make us weaker by discouraging global capacity, supplier diversity and system wide flexibility. Second, the formula crisis points to a better way forward for U.S. policy. Most obviously, the U.S. should follow the lead of major dairy producing nations, Australia and New Zealand, and eliminate barriers to imported infant formula and other dairy products for practical economic reasons and for moral ones. And this is Scott Linskim writing, he said, taxing baby formula to enrich big dairy? Come on. But that's what happened. And now folks are paying the price on it. Now, there's other factors involved. And of course, this is going to get political because it's an election season. President Biden's in the chair, so he's going to get blamed for this. No, it's not really his fault. Wasn't Car- A lot of what happened under Carter wasn't his fault either. He didn't make Nixon put in price controls that started the road to the economy. But then when the economy went bad, it couldn't handle the shock of the previous bad policy. It's a musical chairs thing. And if you're president when the economy goes bad, sorry, you're going to get the blame for it. This one ain't all his fault, though. There's a whole lot of good old-fashioned government incompetence, corruption, and bad policy involved. The FDA needs to get their act together. Abbott needs to get their act together. They're not blameless here either. And we should demand better regulatory policy from our nation, not just paying attention when it stops showing up on the shelves, because by then it's too late. Maybe one of these days we'll learn that lesson. Apparently it won't be today. More Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's go back overseas. A story we haven't covered in the last few weeks, but we've covered before. Hong Kong, of course, is fully under the thumbprint of the Chinese Communist Party now. They have been stripping away rights. They have been systematically dismantling the autonomy of Hong Kong and turning it into just another part under the boot heel of the Communist Chinese Party. Sorry if that offends the Communist Chinese Party people online, but deal with it. You want to be treated differently? Start treating your own people differently. Uh, This is from uh, NBCnews.com. Hong Kong authorities arrested a Roman Catholic cardinal, a singer, and at least two others on Wednesday on suspicion of colluding with foreign forces to endanger China's national security report, said Cardinal Joseph Zinn. Uh, Cardinal Zinn, by the way, is 90 years old. Obviously a threat. Senator actress Denise Ho, lawyer Margaret Ning, 
and scholar Huai Po Kang was detained by Hong Kong's National Security Police, the UK-based human rights group Hong Kong Watch said. The arrests were apparently related to their roles as trustees of the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund, which provided legal aid to people who took part in 2019 pro-democracy protests that were squashed by security forces. The fund closed under pressure in 2021. Scores of pro-democracy activists have been arrested under a sweeping national security law imposed by the Chinese territory by Beijing, in 2020, that's what they were protesting in the first place, by the way, imposing on the Chinese territory by Beijing uh, following demonstrations. The city's independent media have been gutted and shut down and its legislator reorganized to pack it with Beijing loralist. Uh, Zen, who's 90 years old, the retired Archbishop of Hong Kong, is a fierce critic of China and has been blistering in his condemnation of the Vatican's 2018 agreement with Beijing over bishop nominations, which he has said was a sellout to the underground Christians in China. Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni said the Holy See, quote, learned with concern the news of arrests of Cardinal Zen and its following the evolution of the situation with extreme attention. Um, all due respect to the Holy See, see, that's pretty much clutching your pearls or clutching your rosary or whatever you want to call it. That's pretty insufficient. Uh, Ho had been an outspoken in her advocacy of civil and political rights. Her manager, Jelly Chang, I'm not making that up. That's the name confirmed Ho's arrest, but said she had no other information. Why was arrested at Hong Kong's international airport as he sought to leave the city, Hong Kong Watch said. Quote from uh, the group's chief executive, Benedict Rogers here. Today's arrest signaled beyond a doubt that Beijing intends to intensify its crackdown on basic rights and freedoms in Hong Kong. Um, we urge the international community to shine a light on this brutal crackdown and call for the immediate release of these activists. The White House also called on China and Hong Kong authorities to cease targeting Hong Kong advocates and immediately release Zen and the others who were, quote, unjustly detained and charged deputy self-press secretary. She's now going to be the press secretary, uh, Catherine jean Pierre. Several Hong Kong activists fled to Taiwan, Britain, or elsewhere, while thousands of other Hong Kongers have chosen to leave the city, raising concerns about the economic future of Asia's financial center of 7.4 million people. The arrests follow... The selection on Sunday of Hong Kong's new leader, John Lee, a hardline former security chief who ran unopposed in a process completely controlled by Beijing. Peace goes on to talk about Europe's response and the rest of the world. This is all sadly predictable. We knew this was coming. Uh, China can have no dissent to the, their one China policy. They can have no dissent to the Communist Chinese Party. Um, there will never be freedom in China under the regime of this wicked, brutal regime. I don't care that they can buy economically excuse-making for their human rights violations. We're going to use our platform and our freedom of speech and the liberties that we have to point out the fact that they brutalize people. They stomp on freedoms. And just because they ship cheap goods to the rest of the world, have a three-quarters of a billion people strong workforce to make uh, all kinds of industrial and economic inroads all across the world, doesn't mean we're going to bow the knee to the Chinese Communist Party. They're evil, they're wicked, they're brutalizing people, and they need to be called out as such. Unfortunately, that's about all we can do right now is call them out as such. And we're going to continue to follow their imperialistic tendencies because the lie is, well, China's not imperialistic. Sure they are. They're just not doing it merit militarily. They're doing it through things like predatory debt. They're doing it things like reacquiring parts that they think belong to China, like Hong Kong, and making it completely under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. We're not going to be quiet about it, because that's what people with freedom ought to do, advocate for those that don't have freedom. 
or in the case of Hong Kong, unfortunately, tragically, and it's really hard to watch for one of the great cities of the world, watching their freedom getting stripped away bit by bit. More Herd Tale right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. He's one of our favorites. He's been on here multiple times before. I still have to practice saying his name, James Arnowski. We love him to death. He's great on stuff like tech, on regulations, on big tech, and why it is and is not scary stuff. James, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I love having you back. Okay. Uh, Almost all the tech stuff has been relegated to the back page because uh, this guy named Elon Musk, you might have heard of him, uh, is trying to take over Twitter. Um, Give me the sales pitch on it before we get into this. Give me the good and the bad of it, because you actually know the technical side of this stuff. You know the regulatory side of this stuff, the stuff that's going on in Congress. What? Turn the noise down for me. Give me the good and the bad of this story. Let's assume if Elon Musk is able to take over Twitter. Sure. So Elon Musk officially put out a bid to buy Twitter for $43 billion. Um, this was because he felt that Twitter was not a viable option to be profitable and do well. Uh, if he had just stayed at the position that he was at, where he could have had a seat on the board and tried to change the company that way, he felt like that there were too many big changes that were needed with the company. So he felt like the only way to really go and put Twitter at its best position was if he completely bought it out and took it private. Uh, so he put the offer at $54.20 a share, uh, nice little subtle 420 reference because of typical Elon fashion. Uh, so that's that's more or less... The, the broad strokes of what happened here. Uh, originally, the board did try to resist the buyout from, from Elon by putting a poison pill into effect. But once Elon Musk had announced that he had secured the funding, so basically being able to put the money where his mouth was, uh, it made it very difficult for the board to resist accepting the offer because I think the reality was that they couldn't really find anybody that could go and match or beat his offer to be their white knight uh, or to come up with some other strategy that could justify to shareholders why they would turn down an offer uh, that benefits the shareholders because of their fiduciary responsibilities. So Elon's going to go and take over Twitter, assuming you know you cross the T's and dot the I's and everything's fine from a regulatory perspective with the FTC reviewing the deal. Uh, and now really the question is, is what is Elon Musk's Twitter look like? And I think that while he has certainly offered some glimpses as to what he thinks uh, Elon Twitter would look like, 
uh, that's a lot different when you're an armchair CEO versus an actual CEO of a company. So I think that he's got a, a lot to figure out in this space. And it'll be interesting to see out of everything that he has pontificated on, what becomes a reality versus what becomes just, you know, wordplay. Yeah. And one of the reasons everybody wants to talk about the content side of this, and I get that because that's what we use. It's a user platform. Let's take a second, though, and talk about the business side of this real quick, though, because that's the part that actually really matters here. One of the reasons the board felt they had to take this offer is because this is an insane amount of money for the platform when you look at its actual value. Now, this is all stock. This is all projected. We understand how those things work. But the thing about Twitter is, unlike Facebook, unlike um, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and other platforms like that, Twitter doesn't make a lot of money. And I know everybody's seen that $44 billion, but as a business, Twitter has not worked as a business for quite some time, at least in the realm you would think it would with the amount of outside influence it has. So when they started seeing those dollar signs, that's kind of what really pushed this forward as much as anything Musk was doing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the underappreciated factors of the story. And that's something that I certainly harped on in, in numerous media interviews that I've done on the subject is that. Twitter was not, and you, you can only afford to be what you can afford to be, right? You, Twitter could not afford to be a company that was extolling the virtues that it was when the company did not have healthy profit margins. It was having inconsistent revenue. Uh, it was having a hard time monetizing the users that they had in the same way that we've seen other big tech, if you will, uh, platforms be able to do this. So, you know, it, it did make it very difficult for the board to justify to shareholders if they were going to reject Elon Musk how they were going to go and produce similar, if not more, value to the shareholders than that buyout offer from Elon Musk to go private. So I think that there's a lot of uh, factors that ultimately led to it, but certainly because of the fact that Twitter was probably one of the more unsuccessful companies in terms of its ability to become profitable and viable on its own, that led to the opportunity for the company to get bought out. Now, because you study this stuff and you cover it and you know a lot more about it than I do, explain this to me like I'm five. There's still a regulatory review process here. This is, I, I know they've agreed to it, but still on paper, this is a hostile takeover. That's a very highly regulated thing. There's a lot of rules involved on that. There has to be, you know, there's got to be third party financing that has to be verified by another third party. Just real quick, talk to people because I know everybody's acting like Elon's in charge already. He's not. This is going to take at least a couple months, probably at least into the winter to get all this done. Just talk about that process real quick because you do understand the regulatory side of these things when it comes to these big tech companies. Yeah. So I think that it's uh, I think that the hostile takeover portion actually got removed when Elon changed his offer uh, a little bit to account for some things. So I don't think it's technically considered a hostile takeover anymore. It's just a proper buyout. Uh, you know, offer that was accepted by the company. Uh, so I think that now basically the big hurdle that remains is for the FTC to decide whether or not they're going to uh, weigh in and try to block this merger from going through for some reason. But like you mentioned, yes, there has to be uh, verification of assets. There has to be, you know, proof that people have the money they say that they're going to have in terms of buying out the company. There's also how many shareholders are going to accept that buyout offer or try to retain their shares in the company when it goes private in Elon's fashion. So particularly with that example, there was a Saudi prince that had a pretty sizable stake in Twitter that rejected his 54.20 offer, thinking that there was more value to Twitter than that. Now, given where the current price of Twitter is on the stock market, it seems like shareholders disagree with the prince from Saudi, uh, unsurprisingly. So 
Uh, what's happening now is that it actually saved uh, Elon Musk over a billion dollars, not having to go and pay this guy out uh, up front, right? So there's a lot of moving parts, but basically, like you said, there has to be verification of the money. The FTC has to decide whether or not they're going to try to block this from happening on antitrust grounds, potentially, which the Open Markets Institute uh, sent a letter to Chairman Khan, uh, Chairwoman Khan, rather, to go and say that there is justification for preventing this merger underneath the guise of uh, old rules that govern this space. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether that bid will be successful or whether or not Chairwoman Khan will actually step in to try to prevent this from occurring. But uh, assuming that all that goes through, like you said, it's not like Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter right this second. This is this is literally going to take multiple months for all of it to get ironed out if it's if it's successfully acquired, which is why whenever Elon's tweeting about what he would do in Elon Twitter, it's always if the sale is approved, right? Uh, so we have to get to that point and then we can go and talk about it. But the funny thing, like you mentioned, is that people are treating it like Elon is owning Twitter right now. The placebo effect of it has been quite humorous to look at because you have conservatives saying, oh, we got more followers. We got more reach. You have liberals claiming that there's, you know, more uh, hate speech and, and whatever. But the reality is, is that Twitter has been Twitter this whole time. And as a matter of fact, because of the fact that they're in this process of getting bought out, they can't really do anything to change the product drastically because of the fact that that could impact their sale. Yeah, and let's we're gonna we're gonna talk about that portion of it. How everybody's avatar Elon Musk all of a sudden. We'll get to that in a minute. Let, let's stick to the business side of this for just a second, though, because um, I, let me be the skeptic for a minute because I do this. I've been accused of being skeptical from time to time from by you and other folks. Uh, not too long ago, 2018, Musk got himself in trouble on Twitter because he talked about taking Tesla private. And that cost him a nice $20 million fine. Tesla had to pay a $20 million fine. He had to step down as chairman of Tesla for at least five years. This is all the same people that are going to be doing some of the regulatory oversight of this deal. Normally in a deal, when you do this, everybody gets quiet until the deal's done. Now, I know Elon Musk is his own beast. I know he's a big celebrity. He's gone the other way. He's getting louder and louder and louder about all this. That's that's kind of a red flag to me of are we actually going to get there? Now, I know I'm in the minority opinion here, but just play along for a second. He does little things like the 420 stock price. He does little things like his latest tweet about they're going to have 69 million users. That's not accidental. Elon Musk does this stuff all the time. That's not an accidental number. Um, he gets louder and louder and louder about this. He's already gotten in trouble with his tweeting before. Am I wrong to have at least a little skepticism of, hey, this thing ain't done yet, and Elon Musk is pretty much a live wire that does what he wants and does not think things through like complicated business deals sometimes? No, I think it's perfectly healthy to have a decent bit of skepticism that the deal gets done uh, because it ain't over until everything's signed and approved by all the right parties. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to be skeptical especially with Elon's history with uh, tweeting. Now, he has been overly critical of the SEC's department, particularly that's located in San Francisco. They think that he's being targeted. And then with the DOJ and some other folks investigating Tesla more broadly, uh, there certainly is cause for him to believe that he is being targeted because of his heterodox thinking. That is just his opinion on the matter. But I think that, again, when we're looking at uh Elon and, and his different tweets, it presents a unique problem because normally, like you said, these deals go through, everybody stays quiet, they just want to get it done and over with. But Elon's, you know, putting his thoughts out there uh, very openly, and it could cause different problems. But that being said, 
None of it technically violates the term sheet that they signed for him to purchase Twitter. He can talk about Twitter and like what he would like to do underneath Musk Twitter, but he can't go and sit there and talk about the deal uh, in any kind of um, you know negative light or anything like that, because then that would be violating the, the actual terms of the agreement that he signed uh, with Twitter, and he'd pay like a one billion dollar uh, breakup fee uh, for not doing the following through with this transaction. So there's plenty of incentive for Elon to watch what he's saying if he genuinely does want this to go through. Um, and also, it is worth noting that it's not like he has to put up the forty three billion dollars anymore. Because uh, originally it was just going to be him half all the way through trying to do it through Tesla stock, but now he has half of it done through banks and he has other people that are electing to go and stay as shareholders in the new Musk Twitter. So there's lots of ways in which that he's mitigated some of the risk against himself. Yeah. Talking to our friend James Ranowski, uh, Young Voices contributor, really smart guy when it comes to this tech stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Herdtel. We're going to continue to talk about Elon Musk. We're going to talk about the free speech aspect of this. We're going to get into the content of Twitter, something James has done a lot. James has done a lot of media on both sides of the spectrum. I'm going to ask him about how some of the reaction has gone because he's got it from both ends uh, in a couple different places. More with our buddy James on Hertel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Continuing with our friend James Arnowski, great guy, really smart guy on this stuff. Make sure you're following. You'll see his Twitter handle on the bottom third graphic right there. Good guy. Always enjoy talking to him. Okay, I want to ask you this before we get into the content stuff. Everybody's got an opinion on this. You've done both uh, progressive and liberal media outlets. You've done conservative outlets. You're a good guy to ask about this because I've caught your interviews from both sides of the aisle on this thing. What's your read on how much this thing has become an avatar for people? Because, man, people sure got convinced in a hurry that Elon Musk was this, that, or the other just based off of this. I find it fascinating, but you've been out there. You've been doing these interviews. What's your feel of that? Because this really does seem like it's become a funnel for some of the ongoing culture war stuff, hadn't it? Well, I mean, that's no lie that Elon decided to buy Twitter in part because of his feelings about the current state of culture in the United States surrounding free speech. Uh, unironically, Elon Musk, like many uh, folks that we've heard in recent days, claims to be a uh, free speech absolutist, if you will. But then it's, there's always some kind of uh, articulation as to not being free speech absolutist that I find that typically follows that. Um, when, when we're talking about, you know, how this has been politicized very uh, virulently by either side of the aisle, it's not surprising. Um, especially given Musk's rhetoric and how he operates to our point when we were going before the break, talking about Musk and his tweeting, getting in, in trouble. Um, you know, that has certainly inflamed those that are on the liberal and progressive side of the spectrum because they see a guy who is insensitive to potential, you know, speech that could be deemed uh, hurtful and harmful, something that we might not find particularly nice to see on the internet, more broadly speaking. That being said, on the flip side of the aisle, conservatives see this as like, you know, a, a good opportunity to try and rebalance the scales. Conservatives for the past several years have felt like big tech has been targeting them, right or wrong, that's how they feel. And they think that Elon Musk and his version of Twitter, which is supposed to be more free speech friendly, 
is a, is a potential solution that might offer more avenues for free speech uh, for conservatives on this subject matter altogether. So I think the reality is, is that both sides are probably overreacting to the news of Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't think that Twitter is going to be radically shifted in a direction that either side of the aisle is going to particularly like. Um, you know, so I think that there's going to be some form of medium where some things on the margin are going to change. Uh, and we'll have to see how other things go in practice, because, again, he's been very, uh, you know, opinionated about stating that he does not want to go and permanently ban people. So this is a reference to Donald Trump. He has already announced that if he gets the sale approved, that he's going to go and uh, restore Donald Trump's account to Twitter. Whether or not Donald Trump chooses to use that remains to be seen. He has Truth Social that he's using uh, a little bit more now. So we'll have to just continue to monitor that. But I think that it's more about just seeing how the things lay out because it's one thing to be able to say all this stuff right now where none of the responsibility or accountability is on you right this second it's another thing to go and do it once you're actually in control and you are actually responsible for making this company that has been struggling profitable that's the number one concern i think that has to be there for musk is how to make twitter profitable for him because that $43 billion represents 20% of Elon's wealth as an individual. So it's not an unsizable investment for him. Yeah. And the Tesla folks are pretty openly nervous about this thing. If you get below the headlines and start reading into the stockholder stuff that I'm talking about the real money people, not the fans. They, they've got questions about this because this is a big chunk of money going uh, in a different direction. Let me just put it to you directly then. I keep getting told on my social media that Elon Musk is a quote unquote free speech absolutist. Is there evidence of that, though? Because I've seen some troubling things out of Elon Musk when it comes to things like free speech. And I'm not saying that he's not against it in principle, but in actions and practicalities, there's been a few things over the years that I've kind of went, mm, I'm not sure about that guy. Is his actions matching the rhetoric that people are putting on him that he's going to be this great champion of freedom of speech? Yeah, I think that that's the interesting thing. Uh, like I said, a lot of folks like to claim that they are free speech absolutists, and then there's usually always a caveat that follows that up. So Elon Musk claims to be a free speech absolutist, but he has had incidents over the years where, uh, for example, I know that there was an employee of Tesla that was going and showing the auto uh, drive functions uh, of his Tesla vehicles, got into an accident and was criticizing the company. Uh, for that. And that employee got fired. He tried going and gagging it. There was a Twitter account that was uh, actively tracking all the flights that Elon Musk was doing to see where he was at. Elon Musk tried gagging that too by buying the person out and then trying to sue to get the account taken down uh, because he thought that it was a violation of his privacy. So there's, there's lots of ways in which Elon Musk's adherence to free speech principles doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, line up with what the actual ideal is supposed to be. But to be honest, that's, that's, any human. Like, I, I find it hard to believe that you'll find a true free speech absolutist anywhere. I think that there's always the caveat of people saying free speech uh, and being pro free speech is usually I like, you know, things that I like and not things that I don't like. Uh, they want to see less of those kinds of things. Uh, President Barack Obama did a talk at Stanford where he also invoked being a free speech uh, absolutist and then went on to go and talk about misinformation and disinformation and why he 
you know, we need to go and crack down on that. So even though misinformation is still protected speech. So there's there's lots of ways in which I think people uh, like to go and invoke that language because there is a certain tenor about it that is, uh, I think, reminiscent of patriotism and, and the history of America and our founding principles, obviously. But in terms of people ever living up to it wholeheartedly, no one's ever going to do that. So it's not surprising to me that Elon Musk is not like this, you know, free speech absolutist in practice that he likes to claim that he is. Yeah, um, I, there's a couple of reporters that would uh, disagree with President Obama, but let's not rehash all that today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Elon is giving us that very caveat going through his tweets. Um, he recently on uh, May the 9th, which was just a couple of days ago as we sit and record this, he got into a conversation with Sir Novik of all people, which somebody who loves him needs to get a hold of him and be like, quit tweeting with certain people. And that's one of them. But that's neither here nor there. And talking about left-wing bias, and he straight up says that Twitter obviously has a left-wing bias, but then he tweeted this. I'm going to quote it because I found it very interesting, and it piqued my ears up. He said, like I said, my preference is to hew close to the laws of countries in which Twitter operates. If the citizens want something banned, then pass a law to do so. Otherwise, it should be allowed. And the reason that caught my attention is, on the surface, that's pretty standard tech bro speech for, you know, especially with the EU and some of the restrictions over there. Elon Musk has a lot of money riding on China. China, if you're going to apply that to China, that means you're going to follow their rules, which are very restrictive. I don't see him criticizing China the way he's criticizing America and the situation in Ukraine and the EU, which he has had a long running battle with on a couple different levels. That shows up as a red flag to me. How does it feel to you? Yeah, you're not the first person to obviously point out the China ties. I think that uh, there's they, like with any of the American companies that have operations and interests tied with China, that it's not surprising that perhaps you take a little bit more cautious of a tone uh, when even thinking about entering the realm of, of the Asia markets. Uh, so it's not surprising that, uh, you know, maybe he's a little bit more careful since a lot of the uh, I, I believe it's his batteries for the Teslas that get produced over there in China. Um, so there's definitely, I think, a valid concern there to, you know, vet out we'll have to see how that is but even within that statement right like it actually goes in then goes when cuts against his exact point of being a free speech absolutist insofar as that if you're talking about this in the american context uh you know one would think that you'd want to apply this across the board no matter where you operate but then you're acquiescing to the localities which there are a lot of localities that have a lot more restrictive speech laws on the books than you know might be ideal by american values um, so I think that that's actually something that's a little self-defeating. So the EU commissioner uh, was actually just at his Tesla plant in Austin, Texas, and then posted a video with him uh, and then tried to basically insinuate that Elon more or less endorsed the DSA, the Digital Services Act, uh, European tech regulation of social media um, and the Internet, more broadly speaking. And I think that that's actually a horrible thing uh, that the EU commissioner did that only because Elon doesn't own Twitter yet. And he Elon is not a politician. The man does not think about any of that kind of stuff. And I think like if we said, hey, we want to go and crack down on, uh, you know, uh, hateful speech or like whatever, there's certain broad stroke things that I think people can broadly agree to. But then like anything else, the devil's in the details. Um, so that's that that kind of stuff, I think, is definitely worth having a closer examination at. And it was just completely inappropriate, in my view, at least for the EU commissioner to go and leverage Elon in that kind of a position. Because what's he going to say? Like, especially because he has those vested interests in Europe. Um, I think that at the end of the day, there's there's a lot of balancing parts that have to get, you know, taken into account. 
And we'll have to see, because again, this is going to be the actual test is how, how is this actually going to be applied in practice across markets that have different kinds of speech rules? Yeah, is uh, the commissioner's name, Theory Brenton, and Elon actually tweeted the video, retweeted the video that that man put out and then said, great meeting, we were on the exact same page underneath it. Uh, we're going to have to keep a close eye on that one going forward. All right, since you brought it up, uh, let me just go there with it. We just talked to our friends in the UK about this a couple of days ago. Let's take something like the UK where, like, you know, whenever I do an interview, the FCC, because this goes out on radio, I have to tell my guests, hey, we got to be FCC compliant. Don't curse on the air if you can help it, right? Well, if you go over to the UK, you can curse on the air, but you don't have the libel law protections in the UK that I have on this program where I can say things about certain people and I have legal protections. How's stuff like that's going to play with something like Twitter, where we've seen things like in the UK, where the tabloids and others have wound up in court over uh, libel laws, slander laws over what we call pretty run of the mill uh, statements. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, again, this is where people don't realize just how permissive our, our speech is on Twitter and Facebook and a lot of these platforms. You can complain about their decisions that they make. And there certainly is some, you know, uh, veracity to wanting to complain about how they are making some decisions sometimes. But I think that at the end of the day, we are still far more permissive on our platforms in the United States than anywhere else in the world, bar none. No one comes even remotely close. So with the UK, they have an online harms bill right now, which includes trying to tackle things. It tries categorizing the risk. It tries sitting there and saying, oh, like suicide and misinformation and all this other kind of material that's out there and trying to regulate that speech, which again, if it was in the United States, would get struck down by a court as being unconstitutional for trying to infringe upon the free speech rights that Americans hold dear, um, which include topics that we do find uncomfortable at the end of the day. But the UK is trying to legislate this. I know like in part of their report for trying to justify why they want to do this, they cite the fact that children are exposed to uh, rap music online and, and uh, you know, cursing that might happen there to our point about our FCC compliance versus non-FCC compliance. Um, I think that it's, it's very fascinating to see um, you know, the UK and other worlds, I think, just do a great job of highlighting just how special the United States is. Uh, we, we have a very permissive culture for speech, although that is culturally, at least, getting hit down a little bit with the way that uh, some folks handle speech, particularly with like weaponizing the notion of misinformation and other things. So I think that we can certainly be better about that conversation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to continue to monitor that going forward. Yeah, James Zernowski. Uh, you are always on point with your stuff. You get better every time I talk to you, my friend. I really appreciate your insight on these things. Definitely will have you back. It's been too long since we've had you on, but you're a busy man. It's hard to get you on the show nowadays. Um, until we get you back on again, though, let folks know where they can follow you on your social media, your writing. You're doing a ton of media stuff. So let them know where they can keep up with you, see all your clips and your great writing. And some of the, because you've got a lot of regulatory things you're keeping your eye on. Let folks know what you're doing with that as well, my friend. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at jamescz19. That's where I usually pontificate and throw a lot of my bad takes out there uh, <laughs> on tech policy and all other musings that's going on, like my haircut that was overdue by five months. But you've got uh, Twitter is probably the best place to follow me. I have my own personal website at jameschernowski.com, uh, where I try to go and update from time to time with any writing and media hits that I do do. Uh, and also, I always recommend following Young Voices uh, as an organization on Twitter uh, and on their website. They also update whenever I do media hits with great people like yourself and others. Yeah, we're really proud of Young Voices. That's where we um, we had James on back before I was officially part of Young Voices, actually. Uh, they do great work, just celebrated their anniversary. 
And uh, the haircut looks great. I was giving you a little hard time, but to be honest, I got to go get one today too because I got a kid graduating high school this weekend, so I got to go slick up too. So, uh, my friend, I always appreciate the time. Always enjoy talking to you. Let's do it again soon, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Now for something completely different. Uh, we have a new member of the Lyndon Baines Johnson All-Stars. Those are folks who do things while in the bathroom on the toilet. Uh, from the BBC, a Canadian lawmaker has apologized for appearing remotely for a parliamentary session from a toilet cubicle. Liberal MP Shafak Ali was panned by the Conservative Party lawmakers on Friday after a colleague noticed the familiar background of the building's washroom. Quote, the camera was mounted on a ledge over the ridge of the wall just above the back of the toilet, one of the MPs said, the second liberal MP in two years to be caught in an embarrassing situation on a Zoom call. Mr. Ali, a 55-year-old former real estate dealer, was elected last year to serve for a district northwest of Toronto. This incident took place during a debate on a member's bill in the House of Commons where several members appeared by private video call that was only visible to their fellow MPs, thank God. Conservative MP Layla Goodridge, who was attending the event in person, rose on a point of order to suggest that her colleague from Brampton Center, quote, might be participating from a washroom, end quote. A parliamentary page then confirmed that a member appeared to be in the washroom. This triggered a rebuke from the chamber's assistant deputy speaker, who asked that all lawmakers be, quote, prudent on how we use our devices and be aware of the surroundings when you are online. Uh, the discussion of Mr. Ali's whereabouts was raised again on Monday's session. Conservative House Leader John Burchard provided further details, saying, quote, those who witnessed the event quite clearly saw the liberal MP enter what appeared to be a toilet stall in one of the men's washrooms located on this very floor of this very building. The visible stonework wooden door and the stainless steel door hinges. That's a nice bathroom and pretty good fixtures and coat hook on the back of that door. All looks quite familiar. It appears that the camera was mounted on the ledge or the ridge of the wall just above the back of the toilet. I'll leave you, dear listeners, to work out the logistics in your own head of how the member of parliament was sitting then. Uh, the member of parliament was literally using the washroom while participating in a sitting of the House of Commons, the Cathedral of Canadian Democracy. By the way, I, I really dislike how we make everything religious when it comes to politics. We're enshrining law. The sacred duty. Calm down. Your politician's doing your job. Just relax. All right. Plumbers don't dig the sacred ditch and factory workers don't install the enshrined rivets. They just install them. Just y'all settle down. You're not all that important. Back to the piece. Shortly after Mr. Broussard smoked, Mr. Ali called in the parliament. <laughs> Hold on. He called in the parliament to apologize for, quote, the lapse in judgment. I take this matter extremely seriously, and I promise never to repeat this error again. Deputy Speaker Chris Dermonte ruled that the matter was closed following Mr. Ali's sincere apology. If you don't have to have the camera on, turn it off, he said. Last year, Liberal MP Will Amos, who, if this had happened afterwards, we would say, he said, hold my beer, apologized after urinating during virtual video parliamentary procedures. Only a month earlier, he had appeared naked on a video call with colleagues while changing after a run. He did not seek re-election. More hotel right after this. 
Ah, welcome back to Hertel. You know we always end on a good or an uplifting note. This is a cool one. Uh, there's always been a long tradition in times of crisis of using sport both as a way to keep people's spirits up, as a way to distract, and also as a way to raise funds. And they're going to do all three of these over in England. Uh, Petersboro United Stadium will play host to a charity match to raise funds for those affected by the war in Ukraine. I'm reading from Petersboro today's uh, Telegraph paper over in the U.K., uh, this will happen next Saturday, May the 21st. The charity match will see a Ukraine 11 lineup against a Polish 11 to symbolize the unity between both countries. Over 3 million refugees are estimatedly sought refuge in Poland since Russia's invasion in February, as well as raise money for support the world charity. The charity was set up by renowned chef and restaurateur Damien Wojniak. I'm going to warn you right now, there's Polish and Ukrainian names coming, and I'm probably not going to pronounce a single one of them right. We're going to push through as best we can, along with Claudia Zalanowiskia, uh, Dan Zanuch, uh, Andreas Zemanski, and Darren Faraday. Thank you, Darren Faraday, for having a name like this hillbilly can get his name around. I apologize to the rest. To offer those in need in times of crisis, both in the UK and across the world, the charity has been particularly influential since the start of the invasion in collection donations and delivering right to the front lines in the Ukraine. Damien is sponsoring the Polish team through his business House of Feast and E-Green, and that he will play some part in the match, while Dan will be sponsoring the Ukrainian side through his business Danzing Logistics. Folgate Legal are also sponsoring the event as a whole. Tickets for the match are five pounds, and all money raised will be used to further support the work of the charity. Cool thing. Of course, uh, Poland has really been carrying the load in aiding Ukraine. Of course, they share the border. Of course, Poland has a long history with the Russians, so there's a lot going on there, but good for the Poles. They have really stepped up. They have become leaders in Europe on this issue. God bless them. Ought to be a fun day of football, as they call it over there, soccer for us in the States. Uh, hope a lot of people turn out. Hope they raise a lot of money. That'll do it for Hertel uh, for the week. Uh, so hope you had a great one. Hope you're going to enjoy your weekend. I know I am going to be doing some family stuff up in West Virginia. So until we see you again on Monday or on twice on Sunday or on Good Talks, if you want to go back and watch or listen to any of the interviews or for good old fashioned Herd Tell every weekday right here. Can't wait to talk to you again, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. We hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. I know I am. I'm going home. And we'll talk to you next time on Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.